Hello, friends. Welcome back to our tale. The year is 1890. The place, Boston. An evil force continues to seep into our world, corrupting and conquering all who touch it. Our four brave adventurers foiled its mysterious plans and brought Jack the Ripper to justice. But can they succeed again? Can they keep this force from holding illimitable dominion over all? Find out as they face the Red Death. So after Sadet chastises the four of you for taking so long, um, she turns her attention to the Sphinx and starts speaking rapidly to it in this language that none of you understand. And the Sphinx starts responding in the same language and its voice is just deep and booming throughout the entire hall. After they talk for a little bit, uh, for about a minute, part of the wall behind the Sphinx slides open and Kepri turns to you and says, all right, let's go. The Guardian of Truth has agreed to give us faster access. We have more time than you think, but not as much time as we wish. And she gestures for you to follow her. I think at this point, James is pretty on board. So he'll he'll start to head through. Ignacia's gonna like throw Sawyer's arm over her shoulder because she, she knows he's still injured <laughs> and just like try to help him walk in. Thank you for the kindness. Of course. I'll be going this way. And he just allows you to take him wherever you're going. Agnes is in that weird place where, like, it either could be full acceptance or full denial, and she's not sure. So she's just going to follow everybody. So the three of you and Agnes in full cognitive dissonance mode step through this doorway into this room that's a massive circular room made out of the same stones. But... On the walls, it has 12 clocks, seemingly at the locations where the hours on the clock would be. As you look around the room, you notice a 13th clock, which is a circle that's 10 feet in diameter in the middle of the floor. Uh, Kepri looks at all of you and starts gesturing around the room and says, quick as you can, line up the hour and the minute hands, both pointing at 12 there. She points to the clock that's at the furthest point in the room from the door, um, both pointing at one, at the next one, and she points to the clock clockwise from that, says two at that one, you get it, right? And she turns and walks to the one immediately clockwise from the door you came in and positions the two hands at six, at which point the clock begins glowing with a pale blue light. She then starts briskly walking to the next one. Uh, yeah, I think James will do. We'll go and start adjusting clocks. So if I understand, it's we're gonna set the time to, you know, the time that it would be. So one, two, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. I'll go to one o'clock and set it to one o'clock. Okay. Ignacio's uh, gonna put down, like at least put Sawyer off to the side so she can help out. Okay. Agnes is going to take a quick sketch of this in her notebook because she's starting to consider that this is like either a vivid dream or hallucination and she might be able to psychoanalyze herself later <laughs> and make adequate notes. Okay. So are you just gonna sit there looking injured? Yeah, I'll be I'll be waiting right here. <laughs> so she as she sets the third clock uh to the left of the door she kind of looks back at you and brusquely says well if you're not going to do anything you may as well stand on that clock on the floor there 
That doesn't sound so hard. I'll help. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll help lug Sawyer over. Okay. So you're able to get these clocks adjusted pretty quickly. And as the final clock gets positioned so that it's uh, the, the hands line up there too, you hear this rumbling sound from the middle of the room and see that clock in the middle start to very, very slowly start turning counterclockwise and starting to sink into the floor. It's not moving rapidly at all. It would be very, very easy for all of you to stand on it, no trouble, without having to like jump down into a pit or anything. Is the room spinning for anyone else? So as, as it starts to turn, you see that the three folks who are positioning the clocks are staying still. The whole room's not turning. It's just that clock that you and Agnes are standing on. So it's just me then? And Agnes. And <laughs> Agnes is busy taking notes still, though. <laughs> <laughs> so Kepri walks briskly over and uh, hops onto the platform, which is about two inches down at this point. Ignacia steps over and steps down as well. Okay. James will follow. So as, uh, as it starts to rotate, it starts moving a little bit faster. And the floor rotates still slowly down, 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 down. And as it hits the bottom, you see that you're surrounded by shelves and shelves and shelves of books and chairs and tables all around the room set up neatly, clearly a space for people to come and read. The, the library that you're now in is lit magically, apparently from an infinite number of sources of direct overhead light, just like everything was underneath the museum. And coming from the corner of the library, you hear a friendly sounding voice echoing. Hello? Hello? I'm coming, coming. You hear footsteps coming towards you, but they're echoing in such a strange way that it seems almost impossible for any set of feet or any number of set of feet to be making these without intentionally trying to walk erratically. But you see a smiling but disheveled young man, single person, approach you enthusiastically um, and sort of clap his hands together and say, visitors, visitors. And he extends a hand out first to Kepri and says, ah, so that it has been a, a what? Well, it doesn't matter how long it's been in here, but it's been a while since I've seen you, hasn't it? And says, uh, ah, yes, Pesheru, meet these four. She sort of dismissively like acknowledges the, the lot of you and says, I'm going to go do some reading, but feel free to talk to them. They're trustworthy sorts. Sawyer struggles to tip his hat. <laughs> yeah, like how injured are you? Like you're not like almost dead or anything, right? Well, <laughs> my uh, my character sheet, I keep I keep a running tally. So I started at 39. Things didn't go well. I'm at. I'm sitting at a at a good two. Okay. <laughs> That's one more than you need. <laughs> I mean, I'm at thirteen, so you know. I mean, I, which I don't know if there's just here we'll be able to rest. I guess, but mm -hmm. Sawyer takes a slight shuffle, a little bit more behind James than he was before. <laughs> this time, you're the tank. <laughs> Uh, James will extend his hand and and introduce himself. Just you know, say like James Wilcox as, as they shake hands. Sure. So Pachetu takes your hand 
And he says, it's very nice to meet you, Mr. Wilcox. I'm the librarian here, I suppose. I don't have much of a choice, though, do I? <laughs> uh, well, if I can help you find anything, just ask. And James will nod. Is that about the moment where all of us just slowly turn and look at Agnes? <laughs> Knowing the questions are going to come. <laughs> uh, Agnes looks up from her notebook for a second um, and looks at the librarian and just goes, why, why are you doing that? Speaking that way? He says, doing what? And give me a quick insight check. Uh, yes. 18 altogether. All right. How is Agnes's confidence in, uh, not exactly, I've been thinking for like a few days about how to phrase this. What's Agnes's confidence like in terms of people finding her attractive? Um, she's pretty clueless about that kind of thing. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty much all around a little bit oblivious, not uninterested in that information, mm -hmm. but oblivious to it. Okay. So however much you detect of that with an 18, he is, uh, paying a little bit more attention to you than to others. Uh, I guess if you're a little oblivious to that sort of thing, you maybe assume that it just has to do with you being the only one to ask questions and librarians love questions, so. They do love questions. Yeah. My experience. <laughs> that must be what it is. So he says, uh, I'm not sure what my voice is doing. I just nod. Interesting. And so the way you all hear this, it's almost like multiple voices saying the same thing at once, almost like this is a, almost a script that he's said many times before that's being said overlaid against other instances of it. Same voice though, right? Same voice, yes. Um, Agnes turns to the others and she says, are you, are you hearing this too? Oh, thank God. I thought it was just me. <laughs> James will politely nod. He sort of looks quizzically at you, cocks his head, and then has uh, a moment where he sort of puts it all together and says, yes, yes, yes. the, it sounds a bit echoey when I talk, I'm told sometimes. I don't hear it at all, at all. But it has to do with my being here for quite as long as I've been here for quite as long. And how long would that be? He thinks and says, it would, be impossible to say. Did Sadet explain anything to you about this library? Only uh, some brief notes. He says, very well, very well. This is the library of Alexandria. This is all that survives. And this place was created for scholars of the arcane and the mystic to come study. Part of the enchantments put upon it were to make sure that no one evil could ever get in, that only the truly wise could pass the challenges that the Sphinx set for them to enter, but also a place where they could go study with the element that is most often lacking for scholars, which is time. Time moves differently inside the library, and what seems like 
an hour here is really a second outside. Agnes takes Ignacia's hand and places it on her forehead as if to like check for a fever. <laughs> Can I do a medicine check? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. Oh no, goodbye. <laughs> oh well, um, um, that's a fourteen. Yeah, she's not running a fever. She's fine. She's like, she's just patting you down, <laughs> the back of her hand. She's like. You're you're okay. You know this, right? You're fine here. We'll see about that later when I wake up from whatever this is. And she just pats her on the head gently, <laughs> and like you know, sort of you know, like there, there. And then she turns to the librarian. She's like, Ignacia. It's, it's and she reaches out her hand. She's like, it's it's nice to meet you. It's very nice to meet you. One of the disadvantages of my position is that no matter how often people visit me, it seems like it's been a very, very long time since they've been here. So it's always refreshing to see people. I understand that. Um, I, I was curious about one thing, though. Um, do you by chance have um, some sort of, like, medical supplies or anything? I have friends who are... And she looks at Sawyer and James. She's like, "Not doing so great." So, so when you when you look over, because Agnes had taken her hand off of Sawyer to put your hand on her head, Sawyer just sort of slowly sank forward into James's back, <laughs> and is just looking at you sideways with his hat kind of smushed up, <laughs> and he smiles. He says, "We don't have any medical supplies, but." Uh, Perhaps I could be of some assistance? Oh, if, if he could, please. That, And she sort of just grabs Sawyer by the shoulders, and she's not strong, but she's going to try to like gently like pull him out from behind James. <laughs> James will assist at this point. I don't know why I haven't been before. but. <laughs> <laughs> so he looks at James and Sawyer, and sees that the two of you are in not so great shape. Agnes and Ignacia, the two of you are in pretty good shape, but a little banged up, right? Yeah. I'm at full health, actually. <laughs> okay. So Ignacia's got pretty much like just a, like, I think a, I don't remember where I got hit, but she's, she's hurt by something. Okay. So he looks at Ignacia and he says, well, you're looking quite good, but the rest of you look like you could use some, a little bit of help, just a little bit of help. And he takes a book, flips through a couple pages, sort of scans something very quickly, pushes his glasses back up, back at the three of you, holds his hand out. His eyes flash sort of a, a pale blue for a second. And all of you feel remarkably better. You're all mechanically healed completely. Ooh. I mean, let's kidnap this fella. Take him with us. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> just, I need a long sleeve and I'll be better. <laughs> just, just you know, for, for, for uh, you know, it's good to have two healers. So he notes your surprise at his just sort of quick. Uh, he says, yes, one of the advantages of now being eternally trapped here is that I've had some time to study and really 
perfect the skills that I was working on prior to being trapped here. She was just going to ask, were you meant to be a healer? He says I was studying uh, the, the mystic arts and um, had been to this library, as part of the library a few times, and when the fire broke out, thought I would be safe in here and would just wait until someone came down to tell me that the fire had passed. That took longer than I expected, and something of the, the time lock that this library is in seems to have rubbed off on me. When I try to leave, I simply find myself back at the reference desk. Ignacio is sad by this. <laughs> Agnes goes, well, there are worse places to be trapped. He says, oh, yes, I have all the books I could possibly, well, I've read all the books I could possibly read here, but as uh, I'm sure those of you who enjoy reading know that there's great joy in rereading and re-rereading and re-re-re-reading. And, and that book you had, what, what was it? He says, oh, this is just uh, one of the many books of spells that we have here. And he sort of holds it out to you if you want to peruse it. She takes it and starts flipping through it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's written in a language uh, completely foreign to you. You have no idea what it says. Cool. <laughs> James is, while Ignacia is looking through the book, paging through it, uh, James, would, James is going to ask... Um, I mean, do you have any food around here? Do you eat? He says, uh, no, the, the nature of the library is such that you simply don't need to. No eating, no sleeping, nothing. The body simply remains other than with magic in a state of stasis. For all time's sake, I've created a meal here or there. Is that going to extend to the rest of us, the not sleeping and eating and while we're in the library? He says, yes, if you, if you stay, you'll be awake and as refreshed as you feel right now. He says, I don't recommend you stay quite as long as I did unless you want to stay quite as long as I will. But I somehow think that Sadet won't let you stay here that long. Her visits are usually quick and for a very specific purpose. I'm surprised she didn't ask me where something was. James will roll that around in his head for a bit. He says, is there anything I can help all of you find? I think uh, I think so. Sawyer uh, has just been been healed. He, he straightens his jacket, gets everything in order while everybody else is talking. Straightens his hat, catches a little bit of what was just said to everybody, and he just says uh, to the librarian, "So you're you're telling us that there's no food, no drinks, and we are surrounded by books." Uh, yes, and yes, and yes. Agnes, I'm going to have to disagree. This is the absolute worst. Agnes shrugs. So as Sawyer then says that to you, the librarian sort of looks at you, hopeful that you won't agree. And uh, you don't need an insight check to see that he's quite excited when uh, 
you seem to be of the same mind that he is about this. For just just out of curiosity, not because I believe in any such thing, but do you have anything on sphinxes? He cocks his head quizzically at the whole, not that I believe in such things. He says, well, yes. Yes, yes, of course. We have quite a few books on sphinxes. Would you like me to show you where they are? Uh, yes, please. I read in, what do I read in? English, Latin, Korean, and Spanish. So anything in any of those languages will do just fine. Oh, he says, of, of course. And he looks over at Ignacia and says, I completely forgot. He reaches over onto the desk and hands her a pair of glasses that looks like the pair that you got earlier. Are you still wearing those? or? Is oh, that... yeah, I guess I do have them on still. I never took them off. Okay. So he hands the glasses to Ignacia, and then he goes to hand them to you, but says, you seem to have a pair already. But... Uh, and then hands a pair to each of the guys and says, these will uh, help you read any language you would need to. You'll need to return them before you leave, other, of course, than you, Agnes. And you'll find yourself able to read quite quickly. And in any language that we have in here. Sawyer tucks the glasses in his vest pocket and lights a cigarette. And just nods his head. Would the glasses make him be able to read? We'll, we'll find out. Okay. With a quick wave of his hand, uh, your cigarette is extinguished and in fact vanishes. And Pachetu says, I'm sure I don't need to explain to you that there's no smoking in the library. Sawyer slowly turns his head to Agnes and says, well, that confirms it. This place is the worst. <laughs> Agnes is actually very pleased because she was about to try to uh, tell Sawyer not to smoke in the library because it's bad for the books. Libraries are very flammable, but also the scent of smoke lingers on the pages, Sawyer. Says, yes, and given the Library of Alexandria's history of trouble with flame, I'm sure you understand. You understand. Yeah, Sawyer's not going to argue. He shuffles through one of his pockets and pulls out a toothpick, which will probably be chewed down to nothing in, a, in, in no time. He says, yes, yes, yes. as long as you don't light that on fire, you're welcome to use that. You can use that. Can I, can I retcon that and say it's a match? <laughs> sure. James is just going to, he'll put the glasses on and wander around a bit. Okay. Just looking at spines of books. And, okay. So Agnes, he leads you over to a section and he says, yes, this is our section on what some would call mythical beasts, but the ones that are real, of course, not the true myths. Though we have books on the myths, but they're labeled as myths, of course, because this is a place of knowledge. They're labeled as not true. So I probably shouldn't have called them so-called mythical beasts. Wondrous creatures, perhaps? And he's sort of fidgeting awkwardly and doesn't make eye contact with you walks past another set of shelves. And he says, would you like a primer or an advanced text on sphinxes? How much do you know about them already? Uh, it's probably best to start with the primer. He says, oh, yes, very well. 
and he slides a book that he had his hand on back into the shelf and goes a few over, pulls one out and hands you one open to a page that he just sort of pulls the book out, opens it and hands it to you. This, this is, is a book, book that's, that's clearly written for people younger than you are. This is or an introductory text for people who perhaps have traveled from afar and maybe unacquainted with the creatures from a certain region. This one, and he pulls out another and opens it very quickly to the right page and hands it to you. This one is a bit more advanced and goes into a bit more depth. And then this one, and he pulls one out without opening it, is an advanced tome. You, I have no doubt, will find them quite fascinating once you get uh, a bit of grounding, but please don't think that I, you know, you do seem, you seem very smart. And he quickly walks away. I'll keep the intermediate and the advanced books, but uh, <laughs> as I'm not my brother, I don't need the very basic one for second graders. <laughs> Uh, give me an, as you're looking at the intermediate one, give me an intelligence check. Uh, I'm a fan of that just for Agnes Byrne against her brother. <laughs> 19 altogether. Okay, great. So you take a look at the intermediary text and you realize there's a couple little holes there, but based on context, you're able to piece it together. And you notice that just like with the script that you saw on the wall, when you look at a page, everything in your field of vision is both in English and you take it in immediately. And so you're able to read an entire page at one glance. That would have been real helpful in grad school, <laughs> says Cleo, not Agnes. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna, I'll just start from the beginning of this, whatever is on Sphinxes and go through that. Okay. So is there any specific information that you're looking for? I can tell you that, but I figure rather than for the purpose of podcasting rather than reading mm -hmm. entire. I think uh, to start with kind of just on the nature of them, like if they have any tendencies towards maliciousness or if there are benevolent ones as well. And mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you're reading, one of the first things they say is that they're almost always there to test people that they are at their core well-intentioned but aren't necessarily concerned about the lives of the people they're testing. Mm -hmm. They want to see the good succeed, but only the good who pass a test. So they're sort of like a, it reminds you as you're reading of some of the professors you had in college who certainly wanted their students to succeed. were certainly concerned about knowledge, but if a student, didn't do the work or simply got a wrong answer. They had no problem with telling them they got it wrong and sort of casting them aside with a quick, uh, in the case of professors, grade, in the case of a sphinx, worse. Mm. Yes. Um, they're powerful illusionists and they have the ability to create illusions so real that they seem true, even to the extent of doing harm to a person. They generally remain in one place um, and they're difficult to turn away from their goal, but not impossible. There's a bit in the, in, uh, the intermediary text you're looking at that says that 
some very, very powerful evil magic has been able to turn them to a bad end, but not able to turn them away from being absolutely uh, rigidly adherent to testing someone and seeing if they succeed or fail. What they're able to do is make their tests harder and make the consequences worse for those who fail. Mm. Um, History-wise, when do they show up, basically? Like, at what point do they kind of, are there first records of them? Sure. In this book, there's nothing about that. And you're not sure if it's that the the one, the first one you're looking at just doesn't go into that. But uh, in thinking about it, you think that a lot of the books you've read about animals don't have an, a discussion of when they first appeared. They've just, you know, bears are bears. Uh, it seems like the book is saying sphinxes are sphinxes in terms of that. But you're not sure. Maybe in the more advanced one, there's more. Um, I am... Mm-hmm. I'm just. I'm also interested in whether they are strictly related to Egypt, or whether there are any other like correlations or para- parallel mythologies where there's an, like another creature similar to the Sphinx that it mentions. Mm-hmm. So the intermediary text that you're looking at talks about where they're mostly found. They're mostly found in North Africa, though some have traveled elsewhere though because they're such sedentary creatures so driven by this purpose of testing they generally stay in the same area they'll ally themselves with humans who they agree with and if they have a mutual purpose they'll they're convincible not changeable through non-magical means but it talks about how humans have been able to get their help um, guarding places or testing people who would enter somewhere. Um, I guess next I want to see whether there's any mention of like weaknesses or vulnerabilities. So as you look through the text you're reading doesn't have anything about their weaknesses, but it does sort of reading between the lines, passing their test, a sphinx that's uncorrupted, a good sphinx, won't do anything to a person if they pass their test. They're confined to the strictures of the terms that they give the person. Mm-hmm. Kind of remind, well, I guess, I don't know, Agnes would know that. Cleo thinks <laughs> that this reminds her of Faye. Agnes knows a little bit about fairy tales, but probably not enough to make that correlation. Um, Do you want to give me an insight check on that? Yeah, might as well. Or history, probably. History, yeah. That's... uh... Actually, that's a 19. Yeah, so this sounds a lot like many of the other mystical things you've read about, like um, fairies or creatures who... Some tricksters, but some just bound by a code of ethic. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I want to look for from, because we've, we've been stuck uh, sticking to the intermediate book, right? Yes, we have, or, I mean, you can go to the more advanced one. If yeah, you like. I, I think I might take a look at that. Okay. So that's a 300-page book on sphinxes. 
holy shit. Uh, <laughs> here's the good news. You're reading about a page a second. Oh, okay. So uh, let's let you look at that for five minutes and see what everybody else is up to. Mm-hmm. You get actually almost all of that information by the time Pichetto has walked back to the, the reference desk where the other three are standing there. He says, may I be of any assistance to any of you? Ignacia finally has her glasses, so she puts them on and she starts reading it. So she's, she's got a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So you're flipping through and you recognize a lot of different spells. There are some things that you know about. There are some things that uh, your Apolilita told you about. There are some that you've never heard of before and some that just don't make sense to you that seem more at first there are some that seem more powerful than you're capable of doing and then some that just seem absurd beyond the scope of what you would ever expect magic to be able to do give me a quick arcana check arcana okay oh oh that is a 19 plus 9 28 okay yeah so as you're flipping through and seeing some of these that at first your mind says like there's no way you realize that what you can do now, you used to think was folklore, fairy tales, or bullshit. And now you know that you're able to do these things with a thought. Likely some of the stuff you're reading is just beyond your skill at the time, at the present. And that there are some very advanced spells in there that are just beyond your ability at this point. I have no way to write this down, so she's just gonna finish the book and lay, uh, hand it back to him. She's like, thank you for this. Oh, quite welcome. Yeah, so you sort of finish that by the time he gets back. He says, can I help you find anything else? And he gestures to this, I mean, the floor in the library is almost the size of a football field. Um, yes, can you? And she looks to see where Agnes is and sees that she's down the way and then looks at James and sort of sees he's sort of like right behind her. So she kind of leans in. She's like, can you tell me the information on the circle by chance? He says, uh, yes, the circle. I have some books on them. They tend to be a fairly secretive cabal, but yes, we have some books, though much of it is rumor and half-truth, and no one's quite sure because of their secretive nature. But yes, this way. And he leads you down another uh, another path through the library. You walk for a little bit, and he comes to a shelf. He says, these three books would have, uh, would have something on it. He pulls one out, opens it to a page almost effortlessly, and hands it to you. And then he sort of slides two more forward on the shelf. Thank you. You're very welcome. She just finds a table and just sits down, starts reading them. Okay. Looking through them. So what information are you looking for? I believe she's just looking up information about the history of the circle. Let me pull up that document again. While you're pulling it up out of character. (laughs) I I was dying just now because Ignacia said, I want to know information about the circle. And I totally expected the librarian to lean over and hand her a child's book explaining the shapes of the circle. (laughs) (laughs) 
in the document you had asked about uh, anyone famous within the circle having healing powers and ways to better train those powers. Oh yeah, so that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first book he hands you that has sort of general information about some of the known organizations in the in the world has a short entry on the circle that spends almost half the time talking about how little is known about it and says in short that they are known to be all magic users and known to be uh, a force intending to encircle the world and protect it from allowing the red death to come in anymore. And it makes reference to, you know, the well-known belief that the red death is seeping in through some sort of metaphysical crack in the world and expanding its power. And that the circle is trying to slow that entrance as much as possible. Likely, though it's only speculation in the book with the ultimate goal of sealing the red death out entirely. Okay. So she's just, that's pretty much, she's going to just read all this. Okay. Yeah. The other books that he pulls out also talk a bit about how members of the circle tend to find a place and stay there and work behind the scenes to make that place safe from the red death that they're generally stationary, generally using it's thought long-term enchantments to make a place safer. So rather than going out and seeking the red death or its agents to destroy them, they're focused on protecting and purifying and sanctifying an area so that it can be resistant to the red death's influence. And are any of them healers? Like, is there a mention of any particular circle folk by name? Uh, no, none by name. Okay. Is there like random papers and quills here or is it just so she can take notes or is it just good old memory bank? You're finding that you're remembering this all exceptionally well. Yes. Not quite word for word, but as you read, you feel that everything that you find, you could easily paraphrase. Okay. All right. And that was just the first book or is that the second book or? That was the second book. There's, there's really not a lot on the circle other oh. than that it's highly secretive. And was there a third book or was it just the two books? The third one says pretty much the same as the second. Okay. Yeah. All right. Once she finishes that up, she's going to leave it on the table because she does not know his order of systems. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna allow him to do that. Sure. And that's great up. And then she's just gonna just I just wander the aisles. Okay. Just, just see what she can find. Okay, great. So as you're doing that, he comes back to the gentleman and says, Sirs, can I be of any help to you? James would I mean he says, uh, well, if you have a book on horses or horse care, I'll I'll take a look at that. He cocks his head and he says, like spells involving the care of horses? No, just general 
you know, care of horses. <laughs> he says, no, that information like that would have been found in the library proper. This space is reserved more for texts on the more mystical aspects of the world. Ah. Well, all right. I'll just continue to wander then. But I could show you a lovely book on centaurs. Sure, why not? Okay. <laughs> so he leads you over uh, towards where Agnes is, uh, flipping unbelievably quickly through this book. Um, and pulls a few out for you and opens them up to, to various pages and holds them out to you and says, this is a, a bit of a primer and this is a bit more advanced. And then these four books here are uh, much more in depth talking about their, uh, this one about their society, this one about their uh, relationship to what some would have called the Greek gods um, who, Forgive me. I get the sense you and your friends don't have much er, experience with these things. And Agnes, you're in earshot of this as well. Um, I know myself. I've never encountered a centaur before. Yes, uh, very well then. But the so this book talks about their relationship with the uh, the so-called Greek gods who were likely just incredibly powerful magic users. And this one talks about the collapse of their society. Very interesting. And James will get to reading. Okay. And Kent will hope we encounter centaurs in a future adventure. Because so I, I, I wrote it down on my sheet that I read a book on centaurs in the <laughs> library. So what information uh, is sticking with you? What what questions do you have about them? <laughs> Probably just like, I guess their society, like how they, I mean, what like life at home for the centaur looked like. Mm -hmm. And if I happen to find a, you know, paragraph on where best to punch one, you know. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. When it's talking about their culture and you have this weird experience as you open the book and glance at the page that, you're able to see everything all at once. It's not, you know, James is a fine reader, but you've never seen anything like this before. You've heard here and there people talk about speed reading, but that's, it's even more than that. You look at the page and it's like taking in a picture. Everything all at once just is right in your mind. Um, and so as you flip through, you read about their culture broad brushstrokes, it's generally uh, culture focused on leisure and enjoyment. They're not as much for work, though they're certainly willing to work to make their environment more suitable to them, but they very much believe in leisure and enjoyment, that the goal for a centaur and a centaur community isn't to work to create things, to work more, to create more things. It's to do just enough to make sure that everyone will be comfortable with the assurance that 
if something goes wrong or if they need to do more work later, they will collaboratively be able to work together to overcome whatever obstacle that is. Um, and it talks about how that this generally worked well for them, but as you get towards some of the discussion of the fall of the Centaur society a long time ago, it's believed that they encountered some sort of catastrophic event that was more than they were able to, to overcome. Though it's not clear if there was any possibility that they could have prepared for it before. The, the text is generally being objective about this, but it doesn't seem to even be suggesting that it was, you know, sort of grasshopper and the ant kind of thing where the, where they could have done anything to prevent what happened. They just encountered something that felled their whole culture, but there aren't any records of that because of what happened. Very cool. And then in terms of weaknesses, it says that there are two pretty key weaknesses here. One is same as humans, since their uh, torso and up is human. If you uh, damage their head, that generally works pretty well. And also, uh, because they're quadrupedal, breaking one of their legs is incredibly bad for a centaur. Um, not in the same way that you know a centaur would immediately be put down they of course had medicine and, and could be healed but they aren't able to get around well on three legs just based on the way their legs are set up noted all right yeah james is enjoying his education on on centaurs okay so Pashidu comes back and says and uh, Mr. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Well, I think uh, since everybody else has already been escorted to a place, read for a little bit, and Sawyer's had just a little bit of time to himself, uh, he walks over to one of the empty tables with the chairs. And I'm assuming this is going to be incredibly loud, and he doesn't really care, but he drags one of the chairs mm -hmm. just slowly in this echoing, echoing, I'm imagining, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> very annoyingly. Would it be upsetting a lot of people that were reading books right now, if they heard this, um, and sits in a position where he can put both of his feet up on the chair he just drug. So mm -hmm. he's sitting in one chair, feet up on the other, head hat slowly tilting as uh, he, he returns to ask him a question. Sure. Um, yeah, so so he, yeah, if uh, Sawyer answers, he says, um, uh, Sawyer, you, you can call me Sawyer. He says, uh, very well, Sawyer. Sawyer. Often people find the chairs easier to move if they pick them up just slightly off of the ground, but we're not terribly concerned about quiet in here. We have plenty of time to plenty of time. Noted. Everyone seems to be really entertained by these books. He says, yes, I mean, knowledge is the greatest tool we as humans can have. Is there anything I can help you find? I think I'm good. Uh, you said there was no drinks of any kind. Is that correct? We prefer to not have people eat or drink anything in here, both because they don't need to and for the sake of the texts. Yes. Even the type of beverage that might open one's mind to more knowledge? 
If you're whiskey, interested in whiskey, my friend, I'm talking about ah, a whiskey. Said I thought you meant a book on potions and potion making. Oh God, no. No, we don't have any whiskey here, Mister mm. uh, Sawyer. So Sawyer has the his his ring that not 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 his ring from uh, Sulin, but the mm -hmm. other ring on the table, and he's kind of spinning it. You know, you you spin a quarter, mm -hmm. and he's just sort of fidgeting with it, not really thinking. But I'm imagining the other person might notice it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just rolled a perception check, and boy howdy, he does. Uh, <laughs> So as the ring sort of comes to a stop, he, he leans in and he looks at it and he says, where, where did you get that? The Red Death is Morgan Nuncio as Ignacia, Cleo Yansu Davis as Agnes, Tim Devine as Finn Sawyer. Kent Blue as James, and Doug Lewandowski as the Game Master. The Red Death is part of the Role to Play Network. It is edited, produced, and hosted by Kent Blue. Discover more at RolltoPlayNetwork.com And do join us next time, if you dare.